0: All right, I'm going to ask you to use your imagination a little bit to recall a time that some of you might not be super interested in recalling. A time and a place, and that is the middle school lunchroom. You guys remember what the middle school lunchroom was like? The middle school lunchroom. The middle school lunchroom was a place of social calculus. Not only do some of you not like remembering the middle school lunchroom, some of you are like, oh, no, math, not <laughs> calculus. <clears throat> the middle school lunchroom was a place of social calculus, and by social calculus, all I'm talking about is how in, in that middle school lunchroom we would calculate how to use relationships and uh, presence with people and social status in order to create an identity and worth for ourselves. You guys remember this? You guys remember the social calculating that took place in your middle school lunchroom? Who you sat with in the middle school lunchroom signified your status, right? Who you sat with signified your status. And your status in the middle school lunchroom could be calculated on the basis of several interweaving, complicated, nuanced factors, right? So things like uh, like money, like what kind of money did your family come from? What did you look like? What did you wear? How did you look? Were, were you considered uh, an attractive person was one of the factors. Uh, your personality, whether you were an outgoing or like a funny person or a gregarious person that people liked was one of the factors. Uh, whether or not you had hit puberty yet was one of the factors. Your athletic ability or other kind of abilities were factors. And so at any given point, like whether one of these were, were like the levels that you had on these would determine what your social status was, Right? And so, if you had all of them, that's great. You were probably at the top of the, the middle school lunchroom pecking order. But um, uh, maybe one was a little low, so you could really push into one of the other uh, things to come out on top. Have a little bit more status. So, in the middle school lunchroom, also who you sat with, and what kind of status they had, it was infectious. Right? And it would infect you either uh, in a good or a bad way. So if you sat with the people who were high on the status level, that would kind of like increase your status, right? It would make you look a little bit better. You would be infected with their presence and you would be a little higher. But if you sat with people who were lower on the status, that would infect you. No matter what your other um, factors were, it would infect you and it would reduce where you were on the status. There were also lots of stereotypes in middle school, right? The kind of kid that you were. And stigmas. And often these stereotypes and these stigmas um, were really sticky, right? So it could have been just like one simple thing. It could have been like in the third grade, you stood up in class to give give a presentation and you ripped your pants. And then you became known as the ripped pants kid. That was a stigma that stuck with you, and it was really hard to get rid of that, right? Or maybe you got a different kind of stigma or stereotype attached to you, and you would carry it with, with you, and it would determine your status, and so you would have to play this calculus to try to earn value and worth. Is this ringing true with anyone? I'm seeing lots of, like, basically, like, P- PTSD faces. This <laughs> <laughs> too much, stuff. We, we didn't want to go back. Uh, I remember... Um, when I, uh, b- before I hit middle school, uh, one of my best friends uh, was um, a kid uh, who was actually the rabbi's son. So in Hot Springs, Arkansas, there weren't um, many uh, Jewish kids running around, there definitely weren't many rabbi's sons walking around, and so he, was, um, he stood out. He, he didn't fit in on the, on the high level of the social calculus, but we were really good friends. Um, and then I, I realized uh, that I could start to play, by the time we hit middle school, I realized that we could, I could start to play social calculus, and I could increase my status in that social world, the social stratification. Um, I realized that even though I didn't uh, come from a family with a lot of money, um, because uh, I had two things going for me. Um, I was one of the first people to hit puberty, <laughs> um, and I had a, a good amount of athletic ability. And so by using those two things, I could earn a spot at the cool kids' table, and I effectively abandoned uh, my friend Noah behind." Maybe you have uh, a similar memory, a similar experience. The bad news, Christ the King, is that, is that this isn't just the middle school lunchroom, that we actually live in a world built on social calculus. A world where you got to make a name for yourself. You've got to be somebody important. You've got to position yourself with the right people. You've got to look a certain way in order to have identity and worth. Maybe you can begin to imagine in whatever your social sphere is, like what that social calculus looks like, how people scheme in order to, have, to earn for themselves an identity and worth. Maybe you've even seen, too, that this social calculus actually exists in the church, too. Not only is there a kind of social calculus, there's like a re- religious calculus, and acting a certain way, a talking a certain way, a looking a certain way, of, of having, having a certain uh, whatever in order to have a certain position or be a right kind of person in church. Maybe you've experienced that too. Christ the King, beneath the calculus, beneath the scheming, is a longing for friendship, for welcome. A longing to be known and loved. Right? Even even for the kids who like were at the coolest kid table. They they longed. That was the secret. That was the, the thing that no one talked about. Is that everyone was longing, everyone was afraid, everyone was insecure, and we were all longing for friendship, for welcome to be known and loved, and even in the social calculus that we find in our various worlds, beneath that we are longing for friendship, for welcome, to be known and loved. And the social calculus that we play doesn't actually answer that. Right? And yet we find ourselves in bondage to that. Christ the King in a world of social calculus, but a world that longs For welcome, for friendship to be known and loved, we proclaim the good news that at Jesus' table, all social and religious calculating is exposed and deconstructed. At Jesus' table, all social and religious calculating is exposed and deconstructed. Stereotypes and stigmas are neutralized so that we can feast with one another on Jesus' life in his presence. The good news, Christ the King, is that we don't have to play the social and religious calculus game. We don't have to play it. And we don't have to stand accused by it. Some of us are playing it. Some of us are standing accused by it. Our whole lives, Christ the King, can be lived at Jesus' table. Our whole lives can be lived at Jesus' table. There's a little bit of background that helps us understand what's going on in our gospel reading today in Luke chapter 14. And in, 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 in all of scripture and in the Old Testament, we see this image of God, of God who is a host. God who is a host who nourishes his people. Scripture gives us us this image of God as a host who nourishes his people. And in the Old Testament, especially the Old Testament prophets, there's a promise given, a promise that one day God will act to save his people. And that God will save his people by making his presence known to his people through table fellowship. God is saving the world through hospitality. God is saving the world through hospitality. One of the things that we see is that hospitality isn't just like this specialized, uh, specific, small kind of function or ministry of the church. That God is actually, has been and is, saving the world through hospitality. Take, for instance, just one passage out of Isaiah. This is out of Isaiah chapter 25, a passage that you guys might be familiar with. It says, the prophet um, says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts... Will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well aged wine strained clear. He will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all people, the sheet that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And of course, the prophet there isn't just saying that God is going to give his people tasty food. The prophet is describing how God is saving the world, how God is restoring life to humanity by restoring table fellowship. And we we know that in Christ, this day that was promised in the prophets has come. This day has dawned. Christ has come among us as a guest. In Christ, God has come among us as a guest. And Jesus has come as a guest. And even though Jesus has come as a guest, Jesus became the host, the true host. Not by demanding his way, but by offering his life. By offering his very self as the bread to nourish God's people. In order to transform our identity and our status as estranged strangers. Jesus has come among us as guests, has become hosts, has offered his life in order to transform us from estranged strangers into friends. This is how God is saving the world, through hospitality in Jesus Christ. And so we see in Jesus' ministry in the Gospels that Jesus is consistently sharing table fellowship with people. This is a, such a common theme when we read through the Gospels as Jesus at the table with people. And, and Jesus is not just consistently sharing table fellowship um, with anybody, but Jesus is sharing table fellowship with those who are poor, those who are stereotyped, those who are stigmatized, those who are low on the social and religious scale. And whenever Jesus is with those who are high on the social-religious scale, he's he's always turning upside down and deconstructing their pride and their exclusionary habits. Jesus comes as guest, bringing salvation through hospitality by reversing expectation, proclaiming that God's salvation is arriving in and through the lowly, the people with whom he is sharing fellowship around the table, making those those people those lowly people, making them the ones who are the exemplars of faith, of discipleship. And so it's in this background that we understand and can see what's happening here in John chapter 14. And in John chapter 14, we see that, that Jesus' hospitality, the hospitality that Jesus, is, that Jesus brings always makes the lowly and the marginalized feel dignified. Announces their release from bondage. But Jesus' hospitality, the kind that he brings, doesn't always make people feel good. Jesus' hospitality isn't just the warm and fuzzy, everyone gets like a cookie and a cup of tea kind of hospitality. That Jesus'—the kind of hospitality that Jesus brings, that it makes the privileged and the proud feel uncomfortable— this is what's happening all through the Gospels and what's happening in, in Luke chapter 14. And so even though that Jesus shares table fellowship with all kinds of people, we see that some people aren't quite able to key in on who Jesus is. They aren't able to key, on, key in on who they're eating with. And that's what happens in Luke 14. Luke, uh, Jesus is eating, Luke says, in the house of a lead Pharisee on the Sabbath. And Jesus, uh, Luke says that Jesus is being watched very carefully. Those religious leaders are watching Jesus to see if he gets it right, to catch him in a trap. But then Luke very carefully also says that Jesus wasn't just being watched, that Jesus was watching. <laughs> Jesus was noticing, and one of the things that Jesus notices is that the guests the people who have come, who have been invited, are taking the place of honor, are taking the cool seats in the cafeteria. Jesus is tuning into table dynamics, which are really, like, just as they were really important in the middle school lunchroom, they were really important in Jesus's day. In Jesus's day, people traded in honor and shame, in honor and shame. And, and, um, in Jesus' day, the way that you, you earned uh, social, uh, like the way that you kind of leveled up on the social and religious uh, status scale, the way that you leveled up in terms of identity and worth is that you earned more honor for yourself. Like you didn't want shame. If you got shame, that would pull you down the, the scale. And you could always earn more honor by being around people who were higher on the scale than you. So you wanted to associate with the cool people, You wanted to get infected with their goodness and not be infected by the lowliness of others. That's how you, this is the game that people played, the social calculus that people played in Jesus' day. And so Jesus gives two responses. We see this, two responses. The first, and it says that he gives a parable. And I'll get to this in a second, but it's interesting because what Jesus says actually doesn't sound like a parable, right? It sounds like Jesus is just giving advice, because Jesus says, the first thing he says is, when you come in, don't choose the place of honor because then it would be kind of embarrassing if the host came in and was like, actually, that seat belongs to a cooler person because then you would have to leave that seat and go to the less cool seat and that would be super embarrassing. Don't do that. That's what Jesus says. And so that just seems like good advice, right? Like people in the room, the religious leaders in the room were probably like, you know, he's, he's right about that. <laughs> I, should, I should do that because that was a way that people could... Uh, increase their honor. But then Jesus starts to turn things a little bit. He starts to turn it in an interesting direction. He says, that, he says that those who humble themselves will be exalted. And then Jesus keeps going. And what we see that Jesus is doing is that Jesus isn't just giving people good advice about how not to embarrass themselves at a party, that Jesus is actually t- telling a parable about himself. And how he's saving the world, and what it looks like, and, and, and among whom God's kingdom is breaking forth. And so Jesus has a second response that he says to the host, and he's, he's beginning to signal something about his mission of hospitality. He says, Don't invite those who would invite you, don't invite those who could reciprocate, because that was the whole game, that was the social calculus is you wanted to invite someone who could do something for you, but invite those who cannot reciprocate, those who on paper don't deserve to be there, those who will pollute this whole environment with their stereotyped and stigmatized unworthiness, those who in the Jewish leader's mind might actually jeopardize their standing as being righteous before God. Invite those people. And what we're beginning to see is that Jesus isn't just giving advice. Jesus is beginning to describe what he's doing about how he's saving the world. And we see that, that in Jesus' day, even that religious world had become infected with the social calculus. And what Jesus is saying here is he's trying to turn the thing upside down and deconstruct it. And in verse 15, someone responds to him, and someone tries to, like, Jesus-juke Jesus. Has anyone ever tried to Jesus-juke you before? Like, you say something, they're like, well, Jesus actually says. Like, someone's trying to Jesus-juke Jesus. Jesus is talking about this. He's kind of turning up the temperature in the room, and someone says, well, Jesus, that's all good, but anyone who eats of the bread will share in God's kingdom. Anyone. I mean, basically the guy's saying, like, Jesus, you're not saying that, like, that God favors some more than others, are you? More than us. And Jesus' response is so Interesting. In verses 16 through 24, Jesus, he tells a parable about the highways and byways, about people being invited to a party but not coming, and Jesus is basically saying this. He's saying, yes, yes, you're right. Many are invited. Many are invited, but here's the thing. Only those who are stereotyped, stigmatized, and marginalized will respond. You see, Jesus is preparing his table for the poor and the needy and the marginalized. And the truth that Jesus is trying to proclaim here is that the truth is that all people are poor. All people are weak and are needy, but only some people recognize their poverty. And it just so happens that the people who are stereotyped and stigmatized and marginalized, they are way more tuned in to the reality of their neediness and to the reality of their dependence on Jesus for life and to the reality of Jesus' kingdom than those who are proud and privileged are. And that's why those people are the ones who respond when they're invited to come to Jesus' table. The bad news, Christ the King, is that social calculus keeps us and others from living at Jesus' table. And that social calculus is like a barrier for us being at Jesus' table because it keeps us from understanding our dependence on Jesus for our worth and identity. Our dependence on Jesus, on his welcome of us. on Our dependence on, on his life to nourish us. But the good news is that Jesus has come to save us from this bondage and to save us from how we often keep others in this bondage. Jesus has come to save us from this. We can live our whole lives at Jesus's table, Christ the King. We don't have to play the game of social calculus anymore, and we don't have to live accused by it. We also know that when we spend time at the table with Jesus, that we are what we eat. Have you guys ever heard that little pithy axiom that you are what you eat? This is true at Jesus' table, is that you are what you eat, or that you become what you eat. And so we see that, that at Jesus' table, that, that if, if hospitality is the way that God is saving the world, by coming among us and, and, and sharing his life with us and becoming, making us strangers into his friends, that if that's the way that God is saving the world... That hospitality, then, is not just a little thing that we do on the side. That hospitality is actually our mission. This is what it looks like for us to be on mission, to join Jesus' mission. Through God's action of divine hospitality, a hospitable community is birthed. And hospitality, what we're talking about here, is not just some kind of like religious customer service not just making people feel comfortable, even though that can be part of it, and even though we keep in mind that, that Jesus' kind of hospitality will sometimes make some people feel uncomfortable, that hospitality is this, it's, it's welcoming the stranger, the outsider, the stereotype, and the stigmatized, offering safe harbor and friendship. And here's the thing, too, that we can keep in mind as, as we're thinking about what, what it looks like for us to become what we're eating. As we receive God's welcome and hospitality, to extend hospitality, that, that sometimes hospitality doesn't just mean us playing host, but it actually means us becoming guests. See, often when we play host, we have the tendency to turn people into projects like that we need to save or fix. But what Jesus is calling us into, because this is often what Je- I mean, most often in the, in the Gospels, like, Jesus is, is only playing host on the back end after people, like, have their imaginations baptized. Like, Jesus himself is, is becoming a guest in someone else's space. And so we, too, can do that. We, too, can become a guest where, we're, where we become dependent on the welcome of others, and there's something about that. There's something about us taking the posture of, as guests, becoming dependent on the welcome of others in their space, that isn't just about the other person, but that also opens us up to Jesus' presence. Right? That Jesus is actually present to us there in that space when we do that. One of the questions that we can ask ourselves is, how do we, like Jesus... As Christ the King, develop a reputation in Fayetteville for being a friend, friends of sinners. Think about that. I mean that was Jesus' reputation. He was friend of sinners. What would it look like for us? Like to develop the reputation of being friends of sinners. Christ the King, at Jesus' table, we learn to live dependent on His on His welcome of us, to live nourished by His life giving presence. What area in your life is Jesus inviting you out of social calculus and into table fellowship with him? We can experience Christ's welcome and nourishment tonight, here. I mean, that can begin for you tonight by responding um, to Jesus' invitation and coming to his table. But it can also happen at your dinner table. It can happen at your job, or at school, or around someone else's table. These are places where Jesus is inviting us out of that social calculus into dependence on him for our identity and worth. For me, um, part of the bad news is that I've I've realized that I'm often scheming. I'm often playing this social calculus more than I realize. Uh, And often, uh, or recently I've seen too that um, my social calculus has like has failed really miserably <laughs> so it's like I'm doing it more than I realize and then it actually hasn't worked <laughs> I'm bad at that kind of math and, and, like, and has it ever happened to you that it just falls apart that, you, that you've, you realize all of a sudden that you've been doing all this social calculus and then suddenly it just falls apart for whatever reason that feels really bad right what I'm learning is that is that, that is actually good news that, that when it falls apart for me, is actually the best thing that could have happened to me. Because it exposes those places where I'm not living dependent on Jesus' welcome. On, on Jesus' life for my nourishment. And it's an opportunity for me to just step into it. So maybe you're in that place tonight. Wherever you are, I invite you to respond. We'll, of course, have time to respond as a whole to Jesus' table. We'll have time to respond in prayer uh, here in just a moment.